Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Don't Tell Me The Score. This week, I am joined by Clark Carlisle, the man once crowned Britain's brainiest footballer. Clark played football professionally for 15 years, during which time he was chairman of the Professional Footballers Union and an ambassador for the Kick It Out campaign. He's appeared on Question Time and even won a couple of rounds on Countdown too, which would have been more but for some showboating in a crucial letters round. Now, Clark's mental health difficulties are well publicised. He's tried to take his life on five occasions and he's had issues with alcohol and gambling too. The theme of this episode is avoiding emotions. Clark believes his issues with various substances and activities stems from an inability to face uncomfortable feelings, having learned early on to bottle things up rather than face them or share them. We discuss patterns that are passed down through the generations and how we create self-limiting beliefs through misperceiving situations as we're growing up. These beliefs, which were described as guiding fictions by the influential psychiatrist Alfred Adler, then have the power to shape our lives if left unexamined. And we talk about the difference between reacting and responding, not automatically identifying with the thoughts that pop into our mind and learning the language of emotions. At the end of this episode, Clark shares a brilliant exercise to help children understand and express their emotions. So if you have kids, honestly, you won't want to miss that. This episode came about after a Don't Tell Me The Score listener called Liam got in touch with me and told me about the time he bumped into Clark on a train journey. They spent the whole time chatting and it left a huge impression on Liam, who I asked to record a voice message for Clark which I played to Clark before the chat, as you'll hear. This episode is full of really useful lessons, so if you think anyone else would benefit from hearing it, 
I would be grateful if you could share it with them. And do get in touch with your thoughts or questions. I'm at Simon Mundy on social media. And of course, my website is simonmundy.com. I really enjoyed chatting to Clark. He's as funny as he is bright. And I hope you enjoy our conversation. Clark, how's it going? Simon, I am very well today. Thank you, mate. Very well. It's lovely to see you. I'm thrilled to chat and very excited to have you on Don't Tell Me The Score. So thank you for coming on. No, it's, it's a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. You've got a stellar lineup of past guests and um, I don't know how I fit into there. You know, we've been, are you all zoomed out? Is that what it is? Everyone's... <laughs> I'm running out of guests. <laughs> <laughs> No, privilege to join you, mate. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And I sent over a voicemail to you from a friend of mine who also listens to Don't Tell Me The Score called Liam. And he and I connected uh, because he sent me a wonderful email talking about how Don't Tell Me The Score has helped him. And uh, he said, you've got to get Clark on because you and he spent two hours chatting on a train and it had a massive impact on his life. So he recorded a voicemail. You've listened to it. You shared it with your wife. Anyway, it would be remiss of me not to mention it and give you a chance to say hello to Liam back. Yeah, uh, absolutely incredible. Liam, hello, mate. Um, you know, I never would have dreamt that a social interaction like that could have such a profound effect. And and like Sam just said, I, I played the voicemail to my wife, you know, classic Ron Burgundy style. Hey, wife, you see how good I look? And, and, and no, it touched, it touched me. It touched us. Uh, and Carrie made a great point, you know. She said that guys often don't compliment each other or comment on positive interactions. And it's wonderful to me to hear while I'm well and while I'm alive, that, you know, such a, a, a positive interaction happened. So thank you for that lovely message, my friend, and uh, and carry on the stellar work that you're doing. We want to pay forward our growth and our learning and our blessings. So you keep paying yours forward, Liam. Awesome work, mate. Oh, well said, Clark. You have got a good way with words, haven't you? You are a bit of a lyricist. We've got so much to talk about, including what you just touched on there about our inability or perhaps our unwillingness out of habit to express how we feel and actually the how that can impact us, particularly, I think, when we're young. But listen, I want to start with what is clearly one of the biggest regrets of your career, which was um, when you went for an eight-letterer on Countdown. <laughs> <laughs> and Blue, what were you that. thinking, you show Don't even go there. Who? So you'd won two, hadn't you? You'd won two. Yeah, if you just whipped out a six, you would have won, been on a, on a hat trick. And there were plenty. It, casino was there, you know. I, I know what it was. Who pluralizes a mass noun? I mean, yeah, oh I mean, my goodness! We learned that when we were about six. <laughs> <laughs> then if I'd have just declared a six, that would have been an eleven-point swing. The conundrum would have been irrelevant. And now that guy went on to be an opto champ. He was I terrible. Know. No, I'm totally over that. <laughs> I tell, even to win two, though, that's very impressive. But we had a really interesting chat, didn't we? When I got in touch and I rang you up and I said, do you want to come on the podcast? And we very quickly established that we both have pretended in our life to support a football team. Mm -hmm. And I think um, 
you know, having done a bit of research into your story and knowing your story, I do think there are certain parallels. And I think both of us within our life have been seekers of approval, shall we say. And I think come to a bit of a place where we realize that seeking approval or getting approval from outside of yourself, well, it's not a very reliable way to live your life and it's not a very healthy way to live your life. But so let's go back to the beginning, because I'm interested in, if it's all right with you, what it was like for you growing up and what your relationship was like with your parents, with your family. And you touched on that perhaps lack of expression, how people, men in particular, aren't open about speaking to each other about how they feel. Was that very typical, say, between you and your father? Oh, mate, 100%. Yeah, that, that whole preamble there is understatement of the year. This is a situation and a sequence of events that I think we as a society have to accept before we start to make any change. Because generational conditioning is a thing, and it's a huge thing, especially for guys. What it is to be a man and what denotes masculinity is a very important topic that you don't consciously acknowledge growing up. It's something that that is taught to you by what you see the men around you do, especially those who you idolise, which is usually your father. My dad, six foot four, black, uh, Afro-Caribbean individual, everything was about the strong, silent type. My dad had to fight to walk down the street with my mum. He was handy. My dad used to do Thai boxing, and we all went Thai boxing, and I saw him beat 10 bells out of people. My dad was one who was all about corporal punishment, so he was everything about him was strength, it was silence, it was physicality, it was disciplinarian, it was authority. And then he also backed that up by saying what goes on in our house stays in our house. You don't talk about our business This is our business and no one knows about our business. And if you ever broke that rule, back of the hand. So that's the the beginnings of where I learned what it is to be a man. And you think like, you know, your mum might offer some kind of balance to that. And don't get me wrong, my mum was the love and the affection in our household. You know, I went to her on a daily basis for that acceptance Yet still, mum's background was a Caucasian background, English Caucasian background, and it was the stiff upper, stiff upper lip. You are slack-jawed and, and stoic in the face of adversity, and you don't betray your emotions in a situation. So the pair of them together were just a walking advert for silence. It was a walking advert for silence and isolation and dealing with everything on your own. That's why I never talked about my feelings. That's why it never was apparent to me that talking was something that was done or was necessary. But then you talk about approval and acceptance. The way that that manifested itself in my life was because, you know, my my dad, he struggled to get a job because he was six foot five and black in Preston in the late 70s. You know, hard working learners, but no one had given the time of day. And so because his identity was as hunter-gatherer provider and he felt like he couldn't fulfil that role, he dealt with it. He locked himself in his room and he smoked weed. You know, so I hardly saw Dad. Interactions with my dad were really polemic. It was either I'd done really well and I got that positive affirmation when he came out of his room or I was in trouble. 
and he came out and gave us the back of his hand, you know? So I, all I ever wanted was that positive affirmation from my dad. So everything that I did on a daily basis was striving to be good so that when I came home, I got that affirmation from my dad. Now, I've got a bit of a, a googly in the mix here, and I'm, I'm not ashamed to tell everyone. You'd think that mum would be the constant in that situation. But my upbringing was I used to wet the bed. Now, I, I know why now, you know, <laughs> through therapy and all that. I wet the bed right up until I was 16 years of age. And every morning, virtually every morning, I would wake up, I'd wet the bed, and as you can imagine, my mum was at the end of a tether, you know. She'd been going through this for 10, 12, 14 years, and every morning I had upset her before I'd left for school. So when I went to school, everything I was doing that day was in order to redeem myself so that when I got home, I'd summit to produce for my mum and win her love back. Oh. Mate, it was utterly exhausting. Everything that I did from the two people who did love me unconditionally, by the way, but I didn't know, everything that I did on a daily basis was to win love back from my mum and to win approval from my dad. And that underpinned my entire life. Mm. I can really relate to that. And I think it comes back to actually what you said earlier about not expressing how you are feeling, because like you say, you were loved unconditionally, but you didn't feel loved. And I think when we are children, or I know when we are children, we are very egocentric. So it's all about us. So rather than, for example, being able to see your father and see that he was a man who was feeling frustrated because of the lack of opportunity he was getting. And he was taking that frustration home with him. And on top of that, you know, would have had his own conditioning from his own upbringing. And therefore he was an a unable to show you love in the way you wanted and needed. Rather than being able to understand that, children personalize it. So instead of becoming, totally. you know, it's becomes, instead of, oh, my father can't express his love for me in the way I want it. I'm unlovable and it becomes personalized in that way. And then that becomes a, a self-belief deep in our unconscious. And that can then dictate the way we feel for the rest of our lives, really. The discovery for me has been it's an illusion. Whenever, and I always come back to this analogy, is like a, when a baby is born, they can't possibly do anything. And you'll know this as a father of five. They can't do anything to aggrandize themselves or diminish themselves. It's only the beliefs that we then form in childhood that then change that view of ourselves. And I think it's rediscovering that actually, no, we have intrinsic worth just because we exist. Mate, that's powerful. That is very, very powerful and so true. You know, a lot of the work that I've done over the, the last 18 months, especially in therapy, is understanding that a lot of my reactions or subconscious, you know, like sometimes you get a visceral response to something a fear or an anxiety or an apprehension. And a lot of that stems from the learnings of young Clark. When you're growing up, you are formulating these survival techniques and mechanisms. And when you're forming these survival techniques and mechanisms, certain things become indelibly imprinted in your brain. 
And unless you go back and explore what those things meant to you as a child and are able to, as, uh, you know, it, it was a revelation to me to, to realise I am the adult in the room now. I am the grown-up. I am not a, a child who's desperately seeking the love and approval of his father. I am the adult. So when I hear that those loud footsteps on the stairs, that's not dad coming up the stairs to chastise me. <laughs> I don't have to immediately do an inventory about what have I done? You know, have I been good? Have I been bad? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That doesn't have to happen anymore. And it's only in like... First of all, becoming aware of it. And then second of all, when that noise happens, consciously overriding that auto response that child Clark has developed over 10, 12, 16 years, that I'm now able to sit and hear loud noises and not fear for my backside. (laughs) Yeah, it's very true. I mean... I've just been writing a little bit about this, actually. So these neural pathways, and I know you've been studying the brain, right? So correct me if I get any of this wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So um, And so these neural pathways get laid down, beliefs, you know, and they don't go. So, you know, you can lay other things over them. But so, for example, the insecurities, I think, that I have in me and you may have in what you have in you. It's not like you're going to get rid of them completely, but it's understanding that they're there, understanding why they're there, having empathy for them and not being ruled by them. Do you you go along with that? It makes total sense. And uh, what I think is that that is the first part of the journey. You know, understanding that they're there and how they came into being is really important to put that feeling and response into an adult perspective. Then you need to go one step further and be able to, to recognise that I get that feeling, but I, I also act in this way. Yes. Now, yeah, yeah. I need to understand that this feeling is why I act in that way. Can I change that? Two words that I've, I've learned to, to, to apply. I always ask myself when an emotion arises, is it appropriate? Is it proportionate? So that, that's my two-step analysis of any emotion that arises in the day. Because before now, Simon, I, I'm not saying that I was emotionally illiterate because that's not true. I, I knew what the emotions were, but there were certain emotions that if they started to surface, I would immediately suppress them or immediately run away from them. I'd be like, no, no, you know, like, whoop, whoop, dive, dive, dive. <laughs> Get away from this feeling. It is horrible. Yeah, yeah. In recent years, in recent decades, the ways that I'd learned to get away from those emotions have been incredibly destructive. Now, that evolved over time as I grew up and, and you know, I got a family and it, it maybe got less destructive, but it was still totally avoidant. And when you're avoiding emotions, you don't give yourself the opportunity to A, experience it, and B, allow it to pass. All emotions are transient, all of them. They come and they go. So fear and sadness and anger, for me, were the holy trinity. Fear, sadness, anger. If they ever arose, 
mate, I, I had to run for the hills. And it, it's only this past three years I've been able to acknowledge that I feel one of those three and actually distinguish what it is. But second, and possibly the most hardest, is to sit with it. Have you ever tried just sitting when you feel apoplectic with rage? Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard that sometimes I don't just sit. Sometimes I'll scream into a pillow. Sometimes I'll go on a mad, you know, 25, 30-minute walk, but I mean at pace, a full stomp. But all the while, make sure that I'm acknowledging, yeah, I feel angry. You know, there's anger in my belly right now. And then I can come home and the anger has passed. And then I'm able to reflect on with a little bit of perspective, what made me angry? Why? Was it appropriate? And is what I'm about to do proportionate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you talk about sitting with your feelings. Mm -hmm. And I've done the um, eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction course by John Kabat-Zinn, which is the most studied mindfulness course in the world. And you'd have to do 45 minutes of like body scans and sitting with stuff for eight weeks. And the benefit I found from it was the gap between the feeling and the response just grew yes. that little bit. So you get that choice point. Yes. So this quote from the from the course really stuck with me which relates to what you've just been talking about was you can't stop the waves, AKA the emotions, Mm -hmm. but you can learn to surf as well. I think your use of the word avoidant is really key. And I mean, I know for you, you've had drink, there's been gambling, there's been football, there's been sleep, Mm -hmm. there's been a championship manager, all the biggies. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, and then for me, I've had plenty of, uh, you know, I've had some medicinal ones, anything to get away from that feeling. But I think as well, another quote I quite like is, uh, you know, if you want to live without fear, first, you have to be able to live with fear. You have to be able to move and accept the feeling. And then my final thought on this would be how we identify with our feelings. So if we go back to that child, little Clark or little Simon, who felt that I am unlovable because I didn't get the love that I wanted. Then, you know, that brings up a feeling. It's an uncomfortable feeling because it's one of rejection. But obviously we, like you said, it's a survival mechanism. So we are unable to see that the way we are interpreting the situation is incorrect because at that age, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea that our parents are dysfunctional would be too much to, too much to handle. So this, this feeling comes up, but the thing is we identify with that feeling. So then that feeling of, let's say, rejection comes up. And when it comes up, it's like, oh, there's that feeling that we identify with me being worthless, me being unlovable. Mm-hmm. The feeling now has a storyline with it, which is I am unlovable. Yes. And that is, that's, that's brutal, you know? Mate, that, that's incredible insight. That, that's, that took me about four years of therapy to get to that point, to be able to accept and understand that it would, the feeling wasn't in and of itself. It was linked to a situation that was time-specific, that was so overwhelming and overpowerful, overpowering at that time that I then developed these coping mechanisms. You know, I couldn't get my head around that. And you're right, it's the perception of a child. It, the world revolves around them. Everything is because of them and everything happens to them, you know, even if it's not meant to be so. 
and um, talking oh, so many things there. First of all, that fear, what did you say? In order to conquer fear, you have to da da da. Yeah, so, in order to be able to live without fear, yeah. you first have to be able to live with fear. It sounds like a Lego Batman quote. In order to conquer fear, I liked it. No, yeah, I'll tell you what did resonate with me that point of choice. Now, I talk about this when I do my talks, and it's the difference between reacting and responding. And that's where I'm at now. You know, when you react, you react in the dominant emotion of that time. Whereas I believe when you acknowledge that the emotion that's raised, you sit with it, you reflect on it, then you're able to respond accordingly. And I think that's the difference. Am I reacting to situations or am I responding to situations? So that's how I, I phrase it. Absolutely. <clears throat> that communication with children, paramount importance. You know, the the, the child's life is self-centric, 100%. And as parents, we often make assumptions about what the child knows and what formulates part of their, you know, their workings out of the world. And and Carrie says it all the time. If you've never told your child that you love them unconditionally, they don't know. They don't know. You know, it, it, it's, it's an innate birthright. But as we grow up, we learn to value words and actions. And unless you specifically told your child, I love you, and there's nothing you can do to take that love away, they don't know it. And it's the same with, with family members. It's the same, you know, with, with, with your partner, uh, um, with your parents and siblings and stuff. We make assumptions that people know that our love, especially, uh, is is unconditional. And they don't, especially not men of our generation who've grown up with that societal and generational conditioning. And especially those who've gone into certain career paths Football exacerbated my need for approval. Everything I did on a daily basis was only worthwhile if this person stated so. I could think I had the best training session ever, the best match ever, the best blah, blah, blah. But when I got home, I had the match commentator casting an opinion. I had his co-pundit. I, I had 20,000 fans casting an opinion. I've got social media telling me contemporaneously how shite I am. And then I wake up in the morning and I've got one guy giving me a mark out of 10. Now, you see, it's just the, it's just the opinion of one guy. Now, look, this guy who writes for The Sun and gives me a four out of ten has subsequently informed six million other people that I was a four out of ten, even though six million other people weren't at that match. And that, that's, you know, so when I go around and go to the newspaper shop and I go for a, a, a Burger King, those people are like, yeah, you were shit at the weekend. But all of that, it is, you know, you might say they're external. It still only boils down to one other guy. If the gaffer doesn't think that what I did was good enough, I'm not going to get picked. And that directly impacts my employability. And if he doesn't like me, then the likelihood is, if I'm not playing for his team, I'm not going to go to a team that's set similar level 
if I'm cast out of this team, I'm probably going to have to go to a team that's less than. So everything that I did on a daily basis was in order to gain the external validation from those around me. I think this is interesting in terms of, though, if you've gone through big pain, like you obviously have done, and like, actually, in hindsight, it can often end up being a blessing because it it forces you to be a bit more authentic, honest, all those things. Are you able to look then at, at what you've been through and be the word grateful comes to mind. I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but be not completely feel bad about everything you've been through. You know, the three suicide attempts and stuff. It's five. I've, I've, I've had five suicide attempts um, and not all of them widely publicized. Um, and you make a really good point there, mate. Really good point. Um, I've worked hard on First of all, being able to sit with the guilt and shame that, that comes with, with the journey that I've, I've walked. And I've worked hard in therapy on uh, getting to the point where I don't actually feel shame anymore. I can't say that I'm totally removed from guilt. I don't feel it as... Um, as overwhelmingly as I used to. However, there are still many people's lives that have been irreversibly affected by, you know, the, the path that I've walked, um, whether it be in, you know, the destructive coping avoidance mechanisms over the years of the drinking and the gambling and, and the relationships that, that that's affected, right through to... You know, uh, in 2014, I saw a lorry as a killing machine with no credence to the fact that there's a lorry driver whose life has been irreversibly changed by the fact that I jumped in front of his lorry. I still feel guilt about that. And I, I accept full responsibility. I understand the parameters around it that took me to that place, that took me to that decision without me being able to be mindful of the humans that were involved. And I understand that. I understand the power of the illness of depression. That's not to say, like I said, I still feel guilty at times. And that's okay. I think it's appropriate. I sit with the guilt and it, it, it passes. It's transient. The important point of life that I'm at now is that I can acknowledge these emotions that I'm feeling. I can feel guilt. I can feel fear. I can feel like my identity is being questioned or my values being questioned. I can feel that now and it's not dangerous anymore, Simon. There was a yeah. point in my life where if I was to, you know, allow these emotions in, it would have been dangerous because my mind would have gone east to west and back again and every permutation it's not dangerous for me anymore to sit and feel these emotions. I have walked my path for a reason. I believe that everything has happened for a reason. And, um, and I wouldn't be able to do what I do now had I not been through what I've been through. Would I change it? Mate, there are aspects that I would change in a heartbeat. You know, I people who say... 
you know, oh, I'd never change a thing. Of course I would change things. I don't want I don't want collateral damage because of my journey. That being said, had I not been through what I've been through, the work that we do now wouldn't be as effective and wouldn't be as powerful and far-reaching at a time when I believe it's most necessary. You spoke about sitting with your guilt and you're able to do that now, whereas I get the impression like previously when that guilt would come up, you used the word avoidant as well. And so you would, that's when you would run into your addictions, should we say, easily labeled as addictions. And at the time, I know you, whether that was booze or gambling or the other things uh, that we've mentioned, I know you, like I said, sleeping or whatever it was, you ran into them. And at first you thought it was the substance or the activity that you had a problem with. But actually in time you learned that no, it was the avoidance of the feeling that was the problem. Is that is that fair? That is very fair, and um, it, it's quite. Um, I don't know what's the word to to use. I don't. I think it's quite a a disruptive claim to make, you know, especially when you you're speaking to people who who ardently believe in 12-step approach to everything, you know, uh, and, and uh, one of the things about addiction is the inability to accept and address the fact that you've got an, an addiction is a sign that you've got an addiction. Now, it, 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 if you're bringing a, a circumstance where, it's almost you can excuse the behaviour for an individual. That can be quite dubious ground. So I am going to only say that this is my lived experience and this is what I know. And I know that I'm not an alcohol addict. I know that I'm not a gambling addict. I know that I'm not a computer games addict. I do know that... Whenever I had uh, a situation that caused me to feel like I was worthless or I had failed or that someone had questioned my ability to be a good father or a good son or a good friend, I know that over the past 20 years, since my first suicide attempt, in 2001, my immediate reaction would be to totally disengage with that thought. I could not afford to engage with that thought because the last time I did, I tried to kill myself. So subsequently, whenever anything of that kind of mold you know of questioning me came came to the surface I had to get away from it and the first thing that I found that enabled me to get away from my thoughts was alcohol it wasn't that it took my thoughts away it was that it, it put me in a position that I utterly adored and that position was that I didn't give a shit it was brilliant the destructive byproduct of that was that it wasn't just that I didn't give a shit about that thought, it was that I didn't give a shit about anything. 
any of my responsibilities, any of my roles. And so the, you know, the consequences were bad. Then I moved to gambling and gambling, um, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know how to put this across, but I have a really logical mind. I love maths. I love numbers. Uh, and I would love getting into fruit machines and just, I, honestly, I'll get so engrossed. I'd get engrossed in the permutations of this win and that win and, and how much have I, have I stayed? And if I increase my stake, how many spins have I got left? And, and what can I do for this, that? And I would just get totally engrossed in it. And that would take my mind away from what I'm thinking. Obviously, the house always wins. So the byproduct of that financially was was being in a position of being um, well, of losing money. And then when you're in a relationship, you usually have to try and explain that away. So then that got me into lying about where the money had gone and what I'd done with it and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and so the lies and the deceit and the guilt came in with the gambling, which then I needed to run away from. So I go back to the, the, the gambling. And then when you get to a point where you think, you know, I can't in good consciousness do this while I'm sober, but if I'm drunk, then it doesn't matter. I've got an excuse for my actions when I'm drunk. Drink would be a precursor to then gamble so that I could absolve myself of the responsibility of gambling because it was the drink. Such a complex cycle. Mm. Move yeah. away, and then you know, as I as I put those to the side, mate, because I'm not aware that what I'm doing is running away from a feeling. I think I've dealt with with the behaviours, and then, like you said, you know, I'd I'd end up engaging in computer games like Championship Manager again because it's all logic and stats and stuff like that, Candy Crush because it's all you know logic and patterns and me beating the system, and. It was only when I got to the understanding that all I was doing was avoiding an emotion. Yeah. That's when I was able to address the fact that it's not the action that's the problem for me. It's my motivation for engaging in the action. Yeah. And um, it's only been these past two or three years that I am now able to engage in these actions without it being a Russian roulette. It's only because I know that to have a pint, I don't gamble now. To have a drink or to get engrossed in, in my, my phone 12 hours a day, to sleep for 18 hours a day, they don't work for me. They're not constructive. So I needed to learn better ways to manage uh, my response to feeling these emotions. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Emotions. Yeah, we all have our ways of distracting, don't we? And I mentioned to you earlier, it's interesting. Some of us seem to get drawn towards certain things. I'm quite grateful that my friends would call me a bit of a tightwad, but that, that me, that's, <laughs> that's kept me away from gambling. Because gambling, I think, is, is a really scary one because obviously it, it's invisible, right? But you can lose so much and end up in such a desperate situation. But, you know, I've had my various things to take me away from my feelings for sure and i think you know i'm probably quite sensitive and i'm sure you are too i might have to everyone is really right but one of them is and i'm interested in what you think about this is just thinking so if there's an uncomfortable feeling rather than take myself to this take my attention my awareness to the sensation itself which is just essentially of itself is kind of neutral i'll disappear up into my head and just go <laughs> just go round and round and round. I'm trying to think my way out of a feeling. I feel like I, I almost have relied on overthinking to try and avoid feelings. Do you think that that is a thing in your Mate, experience? That, that, I feel so known. Uh, it's a very familiar situation to me. Uh, I'm a ruminator, you know? It's a really, really shit version of the Terminator. <laughs> it, goes around, it goes around through time thinking about yeah. potential outcomes to certain yeah. scenarios. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they really should make a film like that. That is brilliant. <laughs> that is spot on. What a fantastic analogy. Well, that is. I'll a be metaphor. Back repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is brilliant. That's so true, though, isn't it? it the is. ruminator. It that's all it does is travel through time to torment you. Into the past, into the future, bingo. Exactly. And that's the one of the brilliant things about the, the human brain and what sets us apart from all other species is this ability to put things in time and place and predict various outcomes and various you know circumstances that might affect it. Um, it's also... One of the worst things about the human brain, because, you know, we, 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 there's an element of our psyche that has the ability to look for the worst case scenario. Now, for, for survival, it's really important. But when you're thinking about an emotion or, or just, a, you know, a life situation, invariably, it's not a survival situation. But if, if it's in your brain, you will take it to the worst possible scenario. And then you'll get there and you'll think, no, actually, that's not the worst possible scenario. This is 
no, it's not, this is, no, it's not, this is. Uh, and you just keep going left and right and left and right, adding little bits to the equation, like you said, without getting any objectivity on whatever it is that you're talking about. And this, I don't do this anymore. I do not overthink. I consciously stop myself debriefing. It, it, it's, it's no good So how for do you me. do that? Well, if if there is, throw something at me. We've, uh, we've had a talk, you know, we've done a delivery. Uh, we give a talk to a company and me stepping away from that talk is prime situation where historically I would have run through everything I've said, uh, you know, in a full um, second by second thing. And then I'd have gone to match of the day highlights and gone for the best bits. And then I would have, you know, I'd have had Alan Hansen telling me that was no, terrible and blah, blah, blah. And, and then I'd be like, oh, my God, what are they saying about it now? I wonder if they're talking about this, that and the other. That, and I would have gone west with that. Now, we do our delivery. I go into the back garden for about three, four minutes. I come back inside. I say to Carrie, how do you think that went? And then we talk about how the delivery went. And I said, I like what you did here. Uh, I'm not sure I said this right. Carrie says, blah, 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 blah. It's to bed. So the, the debrief has happened in concert with someone else who was there. Now, that can't always happen. You know, when I've got something just going on in my head, I have to tell someone. So I I have a council of people around me now. You know, uh, there's my wife, Carrie. There's my brother, my older brother, Marvin. There's my eldest daughter. She's 22, Francesca. Uh, there's my best friend, M. Potts. And there is uh, my therapist, Nick Mercer. Uh, and also my mum and dad, and they come together. In that council of people, I can tell someone anything. And that's what I do. Now, when I have that thought come into, into my mind that I know is grounds for rumination, I tell someone, whether it's via text, whether it's having a phone call, I just put it out there. And once it's out of my brain, then I don't ruminate on it as much. Yeah, I think that's such a so powerful because i know you so you did your cruciate ligament didn't you when you mm -hmm. in 2001 so you're a young man you were flying high in terms of your football career you're playing for england under 21 did your cruciate ligament and then all of a sudden not only is your football career ground to a halt but they've even told you you might struggle to walk again right mm -hmm. and i know that you at that point just bottled it up but now, so you have this this support network of people around you that you can tell tell anyone. So it's it's about that sort of openness. I think that's such a powerful message, isn't it? Because again, it comes back to if you if you bottle things up, they've got nowhere to go, and eventually it's just going to come. It's like steam coming out of your ears, and that's you know that's what was happening to you, wasn't it? It was just going round and round and round, and then eventually you would sort of pop. And now you've got this group of people around you, you can you can unload to. It works as well, fella. There there are two ways in which it works. Uh, first of all, is like like we we're saying, when you go round and round and round, in, in, inevitably the end that you come to is getting worse and worse and worse. You know that's why your head's batting it round because you're like, oh, I don't want it to be that, and you go boom, 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 and it gets worse and worse. When you share it with someone, then they have a, a an opportunity to put some objectivity into the situation. You know, give a different perspective. Now, 
this is important, what Carrie and I do, because naturally I'm a very optimistic person uh, and Carrie is a very pessimistic person when it comes to initial responses to situations. You know, I like to see how we can win and Carrie often sees how we're definitely going to lose. Now, what we do is we share each other's perspective. We don't discount them because that's that's not helpful either. Nobody wants to be discounted. You want your perspective to be heard and acknowledged. And then we say, we say, do you know what? It's probably going to be somewhere between the two. We say, yeah, yeah, it probably will. You know, because it, it, <laughs> I've never been a middle ground person. You know, mid, the middle ground doesn't exist. It's no. win or lose, success, failure, blah, blah, blah. And middle ground is something that I've been exploring this past two years in, in my therapy. And, and I think I, I'm... I think I'm getting there with it now. Um, but it's really helpful for us to hear what the other person is saying so they feel acknowledged, they feel heard. You've got the objectivity of the other person's uh, opinion. But also, we come to the conclusion that, do you know what? It'll probably be somewhere in between. And, and there's a really you know calming uh, element and aspect to that that enables you to walk into the situation. The second bit about it, and I think this is crucial, mate, is when I, I'm actually learning about this now in the psychology, your brain has a finite bandwidth to deal with with thoughts and and stuff. There's only a certain amount that your attention and awareness can be capable of managing at any given time. And when you share something and release it and get that objectivity, your brain is able to put it to one side. And when you do that, that opens up that space for something else to come in. When you're suppressing something and it's unresolved, it's still taking up that portion of your brain. So you don't have the ability to take on more things into your objective reasoning. And that's why you get to a point where it explodes, because you physically, physiologically cannot take on anything else of consequence in your thinking. So when you do this, when you go through that process of sharing, you you actually, you, you're not just releasing the valve, mate. You, you, you open the valve and then you also open the lid because you're ready for, for the next thing that comes, that comes on in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I've got to tell you that I'm sat here right now, not only the most well that I've ever been in my life, but I'm the most capable I am actually better at being a father, a son, a friend, a husband, a a worker than I've ever been in my entire life. And it's not as though my life's been shite. I doff my cap to you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, It's interesting that you say, so you're Mr. Optimist and Carrie is, uh, is the other way inclined. And it you know, we spoke earlier about not identifying with that thought that we, uh, sorry, that feeling that we had when we were young, you know, that feeling of rejection that we then personalized and made, it became, that is the feeling of me being worthless or unlovable or whatever. But equally, I think like you can't beat sharing. And I feel very fortunate with, you know, I've got similar people I can go to and just share stuff and just get it off my chest. But as well, just being able to see the fact that your mind comes up with a load of old gobbledygook. (laughs) (laughs) Just just that simple fact. Don't over-identify with your thoughts. Like you said earlier, they come and go. It's a a vitally important uh, concept that that 
people need to grasp, and I didn't. I um, I I all thoughts are intrusive. That's how I put them there. You know, they they just happen. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. I didn't realize that fact. I thought that because there was an intrusive thought, it defined me as a human being. You know, and I was like, oh my gosh, you terrible person. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you are bad. You are bad at your core. And I honestly, I bad is the word that I would you have used to define myself five years ago. Because I thought that those initial thoughts defined me. Utter rubbish. Like you said, they're intrusive. And the best way is to have a look at it and say, actually, no, not today, sir. And we let it glide on by or whatever. Or you engage with the ones that are appropriate and relevant. Um, Let me just jump in a quick, uh, Clark, because the guy I mentioned to you, Eckhart Tolle, right? He's the paranormal. He's a nice line in that book, which is, when you get to a point where you can laugh at your mind like it's a small child. And like you say, like you didn't realize that you weren't your thoughts. You weren't, you know, you define, you have the bad thought, you know, maybe it's jealous, maybe it's angry, maybe it's critical of someone else. And you think, oh my God, I'm bad. But actually, no, you know, these are just thoughts that are popping in your head. The more you can be like, there's just another one of those silly thoughts. Then, then, Then the shame of being associated with that thought goes. Mate, I have this year gotten to that point. It's taken a long old while to get there. I, I like to explain it like this. Just because, you know, you're having a discussion with someone and it turns into an argument and you think, oh, I could poke you in the eye right now. That, that doesn't mean that you yeah. have assaulted them. You know? <laughs> it doesn't mean that, that you are a, a nasty, aggressive person. But... If you then go away from there and you think, yeah, uh, and I'm going to do it with this finger, and then you get to the toilet and you're like, yeah, and I'm going to do it on a Tuesday when everyone's in the office, and you're in the car and you think, yeah, and when I do it, I'm going to say this. Therein is the difference between conscious ideation and uh, just general intrusive thoughts. It doesn't define you unless you take it and actively engage with it. It doesn't define you unless you take it on board and your actions respond according to it. So, yeah, I, I, it took me a long time to understand that, mate, that just because it's, it pops into yeah. my head that I've poked someone in the eye, I haven't actually <laughs> poked them in the eye and I'm not an aggressive yeah, yeah, yeah. person. No, not identifying with your thoughts or not feeling bad for every thought that passes through your head is a, is a really important one. Now, we've chatted about it before. When I first rang you, we both were like, I was like, I don't support a football team. And you, were like, <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, nor do I. And the thing is, right, for a long time, I want to get onto the approval thing a little bit because for a long time, you know, I was a sports reporter and so I felt that I had to have a football team, right? And I was desperately hiding it. You asked me at the time, did I ever fake it? I faked it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was terrified of being found out. And then, all, and then I got to this point, I was like, right, what am I doing? You know, like, why am I doing this? Like, what is the point? And, and like, we've both been a bit of a approval addict in that way. And uh, so, yeah, what, what is your relationship with football like? You know, why are you not a fan? I, I was a bit surprised that you're not. I'm not a fan now. I was a fan of football at five years of age. And I was a fan of football from five to probably... 17. I never had a football team that I supported. 
I followed uh, Man United for a few years because my dad supported him. Uh, I followed Everton for a year because my best mate at school did. Then they got beat in the FA Cup final by Liverpool, so I followed Liverpool for a year. I've never been a club-supporting fan, but I've always loved football. Then it becomes your job. And once it becomes your job, it's just very, very different. The dynamic is different. You know, I can't support a club because I support me. I've got to support where I am. You come through, you know, 17 years of really tough experiences tied in with fantastic experiences. And there's a point where the joy gets kicked out of you. It, It went from being a job that I loved to a vocation that paid the bills when I left Burnley. Once you get to that point and you know that it's finite, you know it's not going to go on forever, it's hard to stay in love with the game. And do you know do you know what muddies the water? What muddied the water was I started to put a foot on the other side of the fence and I was chair of the PFA and I was in these meetings with stakeholders and stuff and... Uh, about societal issues and all this, and and you start to realise how dirty the game is. The sport in and of itself is beautiful. The game of football is just awesome. There are people around the edges that just aren't, and a lot of them are in control of the game, and that really, really saddens me. Do you think money and professionalism and all the riches that have gone into it have exacerbated that? To an extent, um, but they, they've ex- they haven't exacerbated it for those on the pitch. I, I, no, that's not true, Clark. There are some paycheck players out there, and that's understandable because this is a bona fide vocation football now. It's no longer the you know the remit of the working class to play football. You know, if you can earn millions of pounds a year by being in the top 0.01% of the industry, fair enough, aspire, you know, aspire across all classes and, and races and cultures. Yeah, that that makes sense. There are still a lot of people who just love the game, you know. Winning a game of football in certain circumstances is glorious. Yeah. 91st minute winner and all that is wonderful. Then you get the money. You know, and when I say the money, I mean for those who who see football as a capitalistic behemoth. You know, those who see it as viewing figures, those who see it as sponsorship revenue, those who see it as as European Super League. You know, it just they're the people who just make it dirty, and I don't like it. Do you know? Do you know what's worse? You mentioned about, um, what, what's worse about it, Simon? Before you say, go on. Is that Football seen as this panacea that's going to cure all the societal ills just because they're elevated on this pedestal. You know, these young kids idolise these players. Yeah, they do idolise those players. Yeah, so these players should be doing this, that and the other. These players don't do anything that the powers that be don't tell them to do. And the powers that be don't give two hoots about societal issues. They don't give two hoots. All they care about is when a player contravenes societal expectation or 
when a, a player's actions is going to jeopardise the image of their product. That's the only thing that they care about. So anything that's, you know, CSR and all that rubbish is only ever a token gesture. And that sickens me because the power to effect change with football is absolutely astronomical. But it's not utilised because the wrong people are in the wrong chairs making the wrong decisions. And that is why I tell you, I, I really take my hat off to someone like Marcus Rashford because he is using his platform to really make a difference. That is mega impressive. You said about, so you had this, you know, the love of the game and the, the, yeah. the joy of playing, right? And that's yeah. the essence of sport, right? The joy mm-hmm. of playing. And I wanted to ask you, so the, the playoff final when you got man of the match, right? Okay. Yes. So your greatest match, right? This is a subject that really fascinates me because I've heard you speak about it. You said something like you knew you were in the zone because you couldn't remember it. Yes. And and you were like, it was just, it was it was effortless and easy. And I love this. This is this is a recurrent theme who anyone listens to this will know. I, I get quite excited about that kind <laughs> of the you disappears and you just become the game, essentially. I thought you described it very eloquently. Could you just yeah talk to me a bit about what that was like? I I, I can't really tell you much more than that because that <laughs> that was pretty much it. You know, it was such a monumental occasion. I'd been in two playoff finals previously. One I'd lost with QPR against Cardiff in Cardiff, and the other one with Watford. I wasn't allowed to play because I was contractually obliged to not play against Leeds that season. So to actually get to Wembley and play in a playoff final, like you said, you know, it it was the apex of, of my professional career to that point. And, um, and I wanted to make it count. I really did. Now, you talk about being in the zone. I don't know how I was in the zone when it meant so much because there have been games hundreds of games where I've needed to be in the zone and couldn't get there but on that day the first thing I remember is the pyrotechnics when we're walking out on the pitch these massive fireballs went off and my god it was a baking hot day as it was uh, I melted and I remember thinking, that is hot. I wonder if that's safe. And then after that, I remember kicking Greg Halford in the back. I only remember that because Greg Halford was a thorn in my side throughout my career. He was one of those ridiculous wingers who's six foot four. And one of the hardest things to defend against when you're a centre half is a tall winger running across your line and jumping to head the ball. It's almost impossible to stop someone taking a running jump across your line. I hated playing against him. And I remember going up for a header where we were in the shade and the referee was in the sun. And I thought, I'm going to have him here. And I did. (laughs) And we both jumped high and I booted him high in his back. And I don't know how I got away with it. Uh, but I won the header, but I also decimated Greg Halford, and it wasn't even a free kick. And I thought, yes, I like that. <laughs> I don't know how I got away with that, but there you go. There's the science of brutalising a, a winger. And then the next thing I remember is the final whistle. 
and that's it. Amazing. I can't even remember where I was when Wade scored. Incredible. I just find it so interesting that these heightened moments of of peak performance, of peak enjoyment, we lose yeah. that you know our sense of self, our sense of time. All this kind of, it goes. I find it fascinating. Well, that's so rare for me to have, have felt and experienced that. That I think that that is what defines good players and great players. I think people like Thierry Henry always felt like that. You know, I think when he got in front of goal, you, you know, we talk about the ruminator. The, the ruminator has the ability to think 7,000 outcomes in a split second, you know, especially when those doubts of self come in. And I was like that, let's say, in a goal-scoring opportunity. If it was a goal-scoring opportunity, my mind gave me 17,000 doubts before I'd even, you know, got to the ball. Defensive situations, not so much. But, you know, when I was in attacking situations, definitely. I think someone like Thierry Henry didn't think. I think it all came to him as he was doing it. He was in the zone and the calculations that went went on in his head they were just meticulous and unerring. You know, there wasn't doubt. There wasn't like, oh, well, maybe this, maybe that, maybe the other. It was just, yeah, I need to do this here now. And he did it. Whereas I'm like, oh, kick it with my left, kick it with my right, head it. Oh, oh no. <laughs> Sorry, boys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at Blackpool, they used to call me shit sorry. <laughs> it was like, yeah, I can't go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's amazing. That's the difference, mate. Oh, that's yeah. the difference. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think I've spoken about this before, you know, the, the great players of any sport, it's transcendent. And that's why we yeah. love it. Definitely. Definitely. I, I, I think so. And having, having been to a level... And knowing how hard I worked to get there. Um, do you know, this is actually, I think this is interesting to talk about. It's only been this this last year, again, that I've been able to accept that I was quite good at football. You know, before now, I, I, I mean, yes. I, I've pretty much dismissed anything and everything that I've done can, with, regards, with regards to football and, and on-the-pitch achievement. And... You know, uh, I saw it's only a couple of clips. I was like, do you know what? I was actually all right. And Carrie's like, what do you mean you were all right? You know, have a look. You did this, you did that, you did the other. And, and I was like, yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, look, I'm wearing the captain's armband there. I didn't know I was captain in the Premier League. And like, apparently I was like, a dozen or so occasions. Like, oh, wow, that's not bad, that, for a kid from Preston. So it's, it's amazing, like... That search for approval is never ending. And because it's never ending, what you've just achieved is never enough. So, you know, there are some people who achieve something and they can be in that achievement for a period of time. But if you're constantly seeking validation externally, that's not enough. 
you need to do it again and you need to do this and then you step out your door and you need to do it again and you need to do it again. And that's why I've been so dismissive of things that, do you know what, are really excellent achievements. A hundred percent. Couldn't agree more. And yeah, like you say, that external approval is, it will never fill the hole inside, will it? No. So how important has self-acceptance been for you in terms of your sort of journey of recovery? Because I heard you say that your biggest fear was showing up as your authentic self yeah. and then and then being judged because that part of me is not likable, which goes back to what we're talking about at the beginning about that part yeah. of us. Oh, I'm not lovable because of those misperceptions that we had when we were we were a kid. And I could definitely relate to you on that. But yeah, how important has acceptance of yourself you know, with the bad bits, the good bits, mm. all of it, the whole shebang. How important has that self acceptance been to your recovery? Um, it's been pivotal, um, fundamental, and I'm not totally there yet. Accepting myself. Now, the fear was huge. My my fear about being me was huge. It started because I didn't know who I was. I didn't know who I was because I was such a people pleaser that I wore a different mask for every different environment that I was in. When I was with the boys, I was the joker. When I when I was with the girls, I was with the lover. When I was with my parents, I was such an obedient, respectful boy. When I was with these and that and the other, you know, I had so many different masks that I didn't know who I was. And that led to me feeling fraudulent. I just felt like a fraud. I did not have a clue who I was or what I stood for. So when I got to this point where, you know, it was change or die, it was be authentic or, or, or you know, continue down this journey of, of psychological destruction, it was a huge barrier to open, open up, you know, the door to who I really am because I haven't got a clue who's going to walk through there. Mm -hmm. I haven't got a clue if if my wife will like that person, if my friends will want to be with that person, you know, and all that stuff. It so transpires that all of these different masks that I was wearing, they're all a part of me in different percentages. And the fact that I, you know, exaggerated one or, or presented one to a certain group of people isn't always fraudulent. You know, sometimes it's actually necessary. If you're going to meet the Queen, you're not going to you're not going to take her some serious bounce, are you? You know, you're going to behave accordingly. Do you get what I mean? So it's all been being the I right totally person, the right place, uh, according to what the environment dictates. But um, it took me a long while to accept who I am, and uh, this is what I've got to say. I had to go out for the first time and authentically be me, shitting myself about how it was going to be received, and then come back home after that and acknowledge that I was truly myself and the world's not ended. My wife still loves me. My children still love me. Uh, you know, my friends still want to be my friend. I've still got my job. Uh, and all of these things amazed me. It's like, oh, my gosh. But, you know, I was just me. And then the next time it was a little bit easier. And the next time it was a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah. And now being me is what you get. <laughs> um, yeah. 
when you talk about acceptance, you know, I, I was unable to accept who I was because my life was so polemic. There was never a, a place for a middle ground for me, you know, for things to just be okay. Okay was not okay. You know, yeah. good enough was never good enough. But that's something that I've now incorporated into my life that it is actually okay to live in this middle ground. You know, life isn't always one of extremes and everything isn't always defined. Like you said, in that dichotomy of good or bad, success and failure, you know, sometimes life just is and that's all right. Yeah, I think that's such a, a really good point about the middle ground is all right. And, you know, good enough is actually good enough rather yeah. than thinking that, we, you know, I think that's a really um, important place to be. And like you said, in terms of that time when you went out and were like, okay, I'm going to authentically be myself and it's kind of scary. But mm -hmm. so it takes a bravery to do that. But and then, like you say, it becomes goes, easier yeah. and easier over time. It was like the first time I um, admitted I didn't support a football team. Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> And now I wear it like a badge of honour. It's um, true, isn't it? You know, the, yeah. the fear that we hold about it, it, it is the fear of other people's reactions and responses. Yeah. And I think when you get to a place where you're comfortable at the place you're at and you know whose actions, thoughts, responses matter to you, then, you know, the general humdrum, they can have all... I, exactly. It's not my responsibility to make everyone like yeah. me, nor will they ever. And that's all right. Some people will, some people won't, and that's okay. I have the core of It's a of bloody me. relief, isn't it? It is, mate. It's, it's a bloody oh, relief. That It, it really is. It's, it's exhausting it's trying yeah. to please people. It's exhausting oh, trying to be all things to all people. I always think this in terms of like on social media. If someone's slating you, right, and I'm, this is not to condone bad behaviour on social media, but if someone's slating you and, you know, you, you're a bit got to that point of not, really giving a monkeys about people's opinion apart from like your own and maybe a few important people around you to keep you in check then it can be water off a duck's back because yeah. you're like yeah. i mean who, who's this who's this whoever this person is first of all they're projecting their own stuff secondly <laughs> secondly it's it's who gives a monkeys what they say you know like exactly. I, yeah, yeah, yeah i think that's really consequence i call it the teflon velcro you know before now i was Velcro to everything negative and Teflon to anything good. Yeah. Now is the well, it's not. It's not totally the other way around. I'm Teflon to anything from those people who don't matter, yeah. and Velcro to those who whose opinions I love and trust and that matter. That and is so fantastic. That's beautiful. That comes down, I think, a lot to we haven't had a chance to talk about this. Maybe we'll get you on for part two when we'll talk about things like values and honesty and personal responsibility and all those kind of things. But I just want to finish, Clark, by saying a big thank you. And I told you this before we started. So our little girl's just popped her head in to tell me that dinner's ready, right? Yeah. And, uh, and the beauty of podcasts at home. And uh, so when I was doing my research, I know that you and your uh, wife, Carrie, do this fantastic exercise with your little kids at night where you'll go and say, right, tell us something happy, tell us something sad, tell us something funny that's happened that day. And I yeah. thought, this is genius because you're teaching them the language of emotion, right? Yes. And I thought, this is genius. So as I told you before, last night I did this for the very first time. And, and you know, I didn't get it very well right at the first time. I was like, tell me something <laughs> funny. And she's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
Come on, amuse me, child. Yeah, yeah. What am I? What's this school? And then, and then, and then I was like, um, okay, I'll tell you. And we'd been out for the day, and I said, uh, I'll tell you something that made me happy. And I told her we were playing tag as we were coming back from uh, the first visit to a restaurant in a long time. And she was like, oh, that that I was going to say that too. And so now we've got this lovely little new thing. So I want to say a big thanks. I thought that was genius. But I just Mate, think for anyone listening, it's such a good tool. Why don't you just perfect. quickly drop it out there? You summarised it perfectly. You know, before bed uh, with the children, tell me one thing happy about your day, one thing sad, uh, and one thing funny. And what it does, it, it gives them, you, you're creating a safe space for them to share their feelings. They learn the words uh, as, you know, it goes on. So much so that um, Honey May, when she was seven, she said, uh, I don't have anything sad, but uh, one day, at uh, one point today, I was frustrated. I was like, oh, my days. I didn't know frustration until I was 33. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but it gives gives them the the language around their emotions. What what it it gives us the opportunity to do is to, um, like we were saying earlier, tell our children and actually reinforce to them that it doesn't matter how they are feeling about themselves or in a situation, they are unconditionally loved, you know. So it gives them an opportunity to put out what could well be a negative emotion or a negative situation, um, and we acknowledge it. We hear them. If it's, do you know what I find is uh, often time it's it, it's um, it brings up a discussion of something that went on, and and you you know you have that opportunity to then. Give them your learnings and the values that you want to instill in them in a situation. But just initially, something happy, something sad, something funny, and it starts that conversation around emotions from a very young age. Well, I'm very grateful. After my, uh, shall we say, slightly stumbling, messy start (laughs) with it, which got rejected out of hand, she came round to it once I got to grips with it. And I can already tell it's going to be a fantastic addition to our bedtime routine so i'm very grateful please pass my thanks to carrie as well because it's actually out of her mouth i heard heard her talk about anyway listen clark it's been a pleasure talking to you you are a bright man you've been through a lot you are full of wisdom and you're a funny sod as well so it's been (laughs) (laughs) so it's been a real pleasure you'll have to come on for a part two are you up for it mate definitely definitely we'll get into some values clark carlisle thank you so much for coming on don't turn with a score you're a top man it's been a pleasure thank you very much thanks very much for listening to this episode with clark carlisle i hope you enjoyed it and if you found it useful and think someone else might benefit from listening to it I'd be very grateful if you could share it with them directly or on social media. Let me know your thoughts too. I'm at Simon Mundy. And thanks to everyone who's been in touch and left a kind rating or review recently. I am very grateful. My website is simonmundy.com. Head over there to sign up for my new Monday on a Monday newsletter. The first instalment of which goes out today. Clark and his wife Carrie have their own mental health and wellbeing site worth checking out too. Search for clarkandcarriesplace.com. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening. And I hope you will join me again next time on Don't Tell Me The Score. Until then, have a great week.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and and climate neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O S E A Malibu.com code GLOW. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.